Hello, and welcome to Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. I'm Sandra Newman, and I'm with my co-host, Catherine Nichols, and we are joined today by Adelina Kavanaugh. Um, Adelina is a writer and librarian in New York. She has just completed a novel, and she writes a weekly photography newsletter. Uh, we'll have a link to that on the site. Um, and today, our year is 1994, and our novel is The End of Vandalism by Trom Drury, uh, which is a very quiet and understated, but really hilarious and often surprisingly profound novel. Um, it's set in rural Iowa, and it's about a love triangle between Tiny Darling, who's kind of a hapless ne'er-do-well who keeps trying to hold down a job but just can't stop committing crimes, and his ex-wife Louise and her new husband Dan Norman, who is the county sheriff. But it's also about a large cast of characters, really anyone living in or connected to Grouse County, Iowa, may suddenly become the focus of the book. Um, and I would like to welcome Adelina to talk about the end of vandalism. The reason I, I read the book years ago now, hmm, I think I read it in 2014. So in my mind, I read it then um, because Eun Lee had raved about it when she used to be on Twitter. She raved about it a bunch. And I was initially, you know, unsure about the book because if you go by the description, for me, it's not necessarily the first, uh, it's not the most enticing scenario for me. Um, and actually, in a way, it was very, almost, I would say, exotic, um, a book set in Iowa, uh, rural Iowa, uh, was really different from whatever I had experienced. Um, and I actually didn't read it in New York. I read it in Taiwan, um, where I really couldn't speak to many people um, because I don't, I'm not fluent in um, Mandarin or Taiwanese. So it's sort of like when I go there, I get really uh, into whatever I'm reading because it's the only, you know, thing that I have control over. Um, so I don't know. I feel like I, it's one of those books that has a, where the experience of reading it for me is a lot of the pleasure of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, rather than, you know, the line by line sentences. Um, you know, it's just one of those books where I was in the right time, the right place. And it just was a really pleasurable reading experience and a surprising one for me. Was that different for you when you revisited it? to to read it for this podcast? No. Um, this is actually maybe the third time I've read it. I reread it a few years ago, so not that long after I read it um, in 2014. And, you know, actually, I don't know how many times I've read it. This is either the third or fourth time I read it. Um, I distinctly remember the first time I read it was in Taiwan. I was reading it on a e-reader 
And then I got a print copy because I don't know if you have this experience, but when I read something on an e-reader, sometimes I feel like, yeah, I read it, but if I really like the book, I want the experience of reading it on paper. Yeah. Just so I mm-hmm. that's that tensile feeling of reading, having read the book. And then, you know, I'm a bad book owner um, in that in the sense of I I write in my books, I dog ear my books, I underline things. Um, I don't take care of books, which, you know, as a librarian is probably <laughs> goes against my trade. But, um, you know, so I wanted the reading experience to also include some of that, you know, because on an e-reader, it's just not the same for me. Like, I, I don't, you know, I can highlight a passage, but I'm not going to remember it. Um, so that was that. And then I think I also read it again on my phone. I just was really, I don't know, I think I was in a reading slump. Nothing was nothing was uh, sticking. I was reading a bunch of books, trying them and then discarding them. And so I remembered I had it as an ebook. So I was just reading it on the subway. And then I just, you know, I read it again. So I must have read this at least three times, if not four times. And each time, it's interesting for me, um, the jokes don't get old. Uh, The story doesn't get old for me. I thought that I might at one point while I was rereading this. So there's a section where the main female character, Louise, goes to stay at her aunt's um, fishing camp. And as I was... Uh, racing to finish this reread for our podcast. Uh I thought, well, if I'm going to skip anything, I'll skip that part. Um, And then I was surprised when I got to it, that impulse to skip it went away. I just thought, oh, it's, it's actually not that long. And, oh, this, this whole part about, you know, the interplay between the daughter and the mother, uh, I remembered it and then rereading it, you know, I, I got something out of it again, you know, so it wasn't, I wasn't bored by it. Um, even though I, I anticipated having experienced it too often. So I didn't skip anything this time. Uh, I totally understand that. I, I, I understand the, um, I guess several times you've you've described the book as something that you could anticipate being boring but ultimately isn't at all um what did you make of it sandy well i thought it was sort of interesting because i i started out reading it and i thought oh i can see this is good but i'm just not going to get into this at all and i was in a sort of a horror and fear that i was going to confront the podcast not having ever had like a real connection to the book um but then, like, after about 100 pages, it began to kick in for me. And it was like I, I allowed myself to dissolve into the book and ended up really loving it. I can, I can totally see reading it three times. Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's obviously, like, super funny um, but it also has this 
kind of underlying warm glow to it, which you don't expect in in a kind of a laconic realist book about American rural life. Well, it's or a actually love triangle. Like what? It's also like a love triangle story that you also wouldn't think would have a warm glow. Like if you add yeah. laconic rural realism, you know, all of these things to a love triangle, you'd expect, um, I guess, violence, nastiness. Especially with yeah. that character, tiny, tiny darling who, you know, and you, you, he set up like he's, he has these anger management problems and just hits people without intending to. So you don't, you don't expect him to be this kind of hapless, sad, sad character who is very sympathetic by the end. But yeah, well, part of it is the narrator. Um, today I was thinking about the narrator. You know, when I was initially reading the books, the book. You know, I didn't. I wasn't asking myself, well, who is this narrator? But I tried to figure out, well, who is this narrator? And you know, I, the conclusion I came to, it's. I think it's a male narrator. It reads as male. Um, some of the clues are how the narrator thinks about um, the female characters and not in a negative way, but more in a bewildered way. Um, specifically, there's one part where um, the character is talking about Louise and how she's crying. And the narrator just says, you know, well, you you just have to accept that, but not in not in a dismissive way, just like in a really loving way, almost as if the narrator had taken on the um, consciousness of Dan, who is Louise's uh, love interest. And um, but the narrator also has this really uh, this really familiar way of talking to the reader and. Um, in one of the passages, he's explaining this one character, Cheryl Jewell, who is a very minor character, but he explains the the dissolution of her marriage to her third cousin, Laszlo, and how Laszlo is remarried to someone named Jean, and then she's staying with her Aunt Nan, and Jean and Laszlo live next to Aunt Nan, and then, but then he says, the narrator itself says, all these names are not important <laughs> except to show the delicacy of the situation. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny because it's true. Um, and I just really liked that, that intimacy with the narrator, right? Where it's, it's almost like a friend of yours is telling you a story and you both know that it's kind of ridiculous and your friend acknowledges like we do this all the time we're like all right and you know so she's crazy or he did this terrible thing blah 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 you know it's just it felt conversational but not in a way that was cloying that sometimes I see authors trying to do and I really dislike yeah it wasn't folksy it was only uh 
elevating the dignity of like really everyone uh, uh, and the connection to, to every step of everyone's experience. The other thing I felt about the narrator was it really seemed like this was being narrated from the inside of this place. This was not an outside observer um, telling, you know, the dirty secrets or holding any of the characters in contempt, even the characters that are ridiculous, um, you know, like tiny darling and Johnny white um, who runs for County Sheriff and, you know, all these characters there's they're 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 ridiculous but they have a level of respect from the narrator and the narrator is able to give them enough of a backstory so that they feel whole so that you can't you can never just dismiss them outright so it's also interesting that it's not just that the narrator is telling the story from inside the situation, inside the town, um, but also um, it's not somebody who left the town. There, there's not, no consciousness of these are the uh, hardworking people that I grew up around, but now I've um, gone off to the big city in whatever way. Um which seems like, um, I guess, just a, a 20th century way of looking at small towns is that they're the thing that you leave. Mm. Um, and this was yes. not that story. Yeah. I mean, this was the story of a small town that that had been left um, to some extent. Um, but it was not a story of an author looking back on how things used to be um, in his childhood before he went and became sophisticated somewhere else. Right. I actually was thinking about this um, as reading because it it's told in very much the then present. Yeah. So this book was published in 1994 and um, the action ends... I think in 1992. And so everything is very present um, as it would have been at least through this author's and this narrator's eyes at that moment. It wasn't told from a very removed, uh, it's not told from a distance. It's, It's very close. Although the narration itself is not close. It's not a close third. Um, we don't get a lot of interiority. You know, the narrator doesn't tell us, they tell us what, the narrator tells us what the characters do and say, but not necessarily exactly how they feel. Um, And you just get an idea of what the mood is from their actions and their dialogue. Yeah, it's more like a true omniscient narrator which actually in given the voice of the book, that's one of the things that I think I found disorienting at first that, that it was going from character to character in a sort of a promiscuous way, but it had the kind of voice that I expected to be a close third narrator. Um, And I think that's one of the interesting things about it. Like 
like I always think about who's narrating the book. I always think of omniscient narrators as usually being the voice of the town. And in a sense, although like obviously like what does that mean, the voice of the town? I'm not sure the town doesn't have a voice, but but in some sense, like it is a town. It's like a defined geographical area and that's and the book is sort of about that area rather than being about a particular person's life story. So one thing that I wanted to talk about about this book uh, that um, touches on the um, how rare that true omniscient na- narrator is, is it seemed like in many ways it represented a style of novel writing and storytelling um, that is drastically out of style almost immediately after it's published. Um, I think it's it's not just that that the book reads as quiet um you know there's no murders there's no none of the big events like the fire except for um what happens with louise and dan's pregnancy none of the events are played as a way to really move the the plot forward because there's no plot yeah um except people these people live that's the plot well, and that's true of Louise and Dan's pregnancy also. What was well, that? I, I think that that was also true was for Louise and Dan's pregnancy. It's it's like they had an experience that had a lot of uh, feelings associated with it, but the book wasn't using those feelings to kind of drum anything up. Right. It didn't like it's conflict or anything. Yes, I... I... I don't know if it's because of where I am right now in writing, but I, and I think we do this a lot is like we read books that were published, you know, in the past and we marvel at that. They, that they got published at all. Mm. Um, I mean, these, this novel, a a lot of it was run as uh, short stories in the New Yorker and maybe they would still publish them, but I, it's almost like the the thing that people say when they say they don't like New Yorker stories is they're talking about this book or what they describe is essentially this book, which is um, white people living their lives in a kind of uh, economically reasonably safe environment where they might like look up and see the seasons changing or have an epiphany Um but mostly they're just sort of living their lives and thinking their thoughts without it. It's like the, it's like the cliche of the thing that the New Yorker is not supposed to do. Um, Mm. And I think that the idea that this book is taught in MFA, uh, it's taught to MFA students. I don't have an MFA. I don't think either of you do either. So maybe none of us know about this, but. Uh, I'm not sure if this book is taught in MFAs. I, um, I guess this is my moment to shout out the group chat, but I feel like people were talking about how that is assigned in all of their MFAs. Um, I don't remember that, but. Um, it, just the idea I mean, that it's extremely high quality example of what it is, but I also think that the whole world of publishing has kind of turned against this style of book really, really hard since it came out. 
Oh, okay. That's yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. Although, I mean, the other argument is when people want stories by non-white writers, right? And I consider myself, you know, I'm mixed Asian. Too often, they want your story to be about that, about not being white. And as if everything that informs your book um, has to address your not whiteness. And, but the thing is like, everyone goes through these things. I mean, not to make this universal argument, because that's also on the wrong side. Um, but, you know, like this, this, the main couple in this goes through something that is horrible that anyone who is able to have a child can go through and have, have gone through. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, it is a book about small town, white America, um, having, you not having much friction because they don't have the same um, oppression. But then you do have sort of class gradations. Um, but then maybe it's, but then, you know, at the same time, it could be a testament to how, you know, you could point out, well, yeah, Tiny Darling is a criminal. Um, he steals, but he is also protected by his whiteness, right? Yeah. And this is what the... Not, I wouldn't say, I would not say that the author did it intentionally, but that's just what it shows. And so actually when I was reading this book in Taiwan, I was, you know, maybe halfway through the book or maybe not that far in, you get this character who's a Taiwanese exchange student. So it was really funny to me. I'm reading this book in my cousin's house in Taiwan. And then there pops up in the middle of Iowa um, a Taiwanese exchange student. And, you know, as I was reading it, I was bracing myself for being disappointed in the author because anytime an Asian character shows up in a book by a non-Asian writer, I brace myself for the character to be stereotyped or whatever. And I was happily surprised, oh, this character has not been stereotyped in any way that I recognized. Yeah. Um, and, and she seems sort of familiar to me. Like she mentions, they mention her uncle's bicycle factory or whatever. Like I have, you know, relatives who have either worked in or run, um, these sort of small time factories in Taiwan, you know, so it was very familiar. And, you know, I'll be honest, like that was just sort of like a, that little extra hook for me is like a little bit of surprise. Um, but what it does is it also kind of throws even more into relief the 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 homogenous nature of Grouse County. Yeah, um, I one of the things that I noticed while I was looking for uh, reviews and stuff that had been written about this book in general. And I think this is maybe a testament to how much American publishing industry has moved away from this kind of book. Is there very little written about it? 
um, in the U.S., but there are quite a lot of things written about it in the U.K. when it came out in the U.K. Well, okay, so another thing I think about with this book is, like I said earlier, it was sort of an exotic experience for me because if I think about it, I think I've only, I've driven through Iowa. Um, I haven't spent any substantial time in Iowa. I was getting from New York City to Colorado um, when my sister did a year and a half at the university there. And so we drove through Iowa. And, you know, so my experience of the Midwest is super limited. Um, and I think it would be interesting to, I think it is interesting that this book has been written about in the UK, perhaps their interest in the book is sort of like my interest in the book where it's describing a world that is unfamiliar to me. The closest I can get to understanding this really small town, um, these small town relationships these people have is remembering what it was like for me to grow up in Washington Heights in New York, in Manhattan. Um, I lived there until 2009 and I think my family moved there in maybe 1984, 1985. So I lived there for a really long time. And that's the only place I've lived in in New York City that feels um, small townish, right? Where the people in the shops, they all know your name. Sometimes it's really annoying because <laughs> you know, I was, before I left in 2009, the people were still calling me Lena which is what I went by with my family and also as a child. And then in the third grade, I told my teachers, no, 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 I want to use my full name. Please call me Adelina. But, you know, it's like you can't escape your your diminutive nickname in a place like that. No one cares that you want to be called Adelina. They just call you Lena because it's easier and that's what you've always been called. So, you know, everyone who still owned the shop there. They called me Lena. And, you know, even when I started rereading the book, I remembered a man who owned a candy store and I did a Google search. His name was Fred, right? It was Fred's candy store. I did a Google search and I found this really wonderful website, which is just people writing in their memories of Washington Heights. Oh, wow. And, and some of it. I read some of those that you sent. Right. It's written, you know, they, a lot of the people lived there a long time ago, some of them in the 40s, the 50s, 60s. Um, but they have these vivid, really important memories about this, the place and the people. And they have these really funny stories about the people they lived around that reminded me of the characters in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever lived in a place like that, Sandy? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I've always kind of lived in big anonymous places. But I'm just thinking about that, like that, the that that's so central to to this book. It's sort of like it's got this kind of Macondo feeling to it that. Where we're really, I, I guess that the, or maybe do, maybe it doesn't actually. I'm just going to contradict myself. <laughs> I was thinking about what we were saying at the very beginning that 
that it's not about the guy who leaves town and goes off to the city and has his real life. It's really much more that anybody who leaves the town is now irrelevant and doesn't matter anymore. So, so the town is is not a not even a microcosm, but it is the world. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or Grouse, Grouse County, I should say. It's not actually just one town, but. Um, I, yes. When Louise, when Louise goes to that camp, which is in another state, she makes some sort of comment about how, you know, you can tolerate the people in your town and even in the people in your county. But then when you leave the state, that's when people start to seem strange. Yeah, and she even says something about how you can you can also tolerate people who are who live in completely foreign places, but you you feel real intolerance for the people in the next state or some something like that. Something. Like that. They say that they pride themselves on being the kind of town that could put on a nice event, but um, the people in the next town couldn't even keep a tavern open. Yes. <laughs> so they have the you know like how there's a in the in the print version of the book there's a map and i really like that in the the back there's a list of characters in order of appearance um but you know the the narrator has this really knowing way of talking about the town and when um these two minor characters albert who is a high school student and his girlfriend um chang who is the taiwanese exchange student you know she's about to leave she can't extend her stay any longer. And, you know, their teenage heartbreak, um, they're experiencing that, but they decide to go on a nice date in in a nice restaurant in another town, but they get caught in a snowstorm. And I thought one of the funniest things I thought in the book is that she's trying to tell him, you know, we need to, we should go back instead of trying to get back you know, go back to the town and just hunker down. And the narrator says, um, you know, so Albert says, like, they can't. They would look like fools. And the narrator says, she was thinking about survival and did not realize what a serious thing it is to look like a fool in Grouse County. (laughs) Which goes to what you were saying about how they have these uh, understanding about the small differences between the towns in the county one one town prided themselves on putting on a nice event. The other town couldn't even keep a tavern open. But there is also this unified identity where, as a county, they just can't they can't bear to be thought fools. They'd rather it's almost like they'd rather die. Yeah, yeah. As I was reading this, I was wondering, right? Because the book is set in, I think it goes from 1990 to 1992. Um, and the question I kept going back and forth on me with myself is when this was published, did it, do you think it read as nostalgic? Because they introduced these new concepts that were new at the time, right? Like there's this little section where they say Hans has a compact disc player and insists they, 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 um, they take turns listening to the CDs through the headphones and but then there are contemporary references like to Suzanne Vega, um, things like that that kind of surprised me because I think going back to S- uh, San- Sandy's warm glow, 
um, it seemed almost in contradiction to the warm glow that these real life um, things were intruding that we could recognize, like Suzanne Vega, um, that song about the bird, which is, you know, he's talking about, he, they're talking about free bird, things like that. So I like, I couldn't, I couldn't decide if it, if, if it is a book that always feels nostalgic or just feels that way because I'm reading it in 2021. Yeah. I wonder if we're not, I mean, I wonder, like, I feel like the book is actually about love in the present tense. Like it, like we sort of expect it to be nostalgic and for the love that it has for, for the minutiae of this world to be about a world that has already passed, but it keeps on frustrating that expectation and just being about the world of rural America in 1994, 1992, I guess it is. So, which isn't, it just isn't a world that we expect anybody to feel that kind of deep attachment to. Um, so I too, I kept thinking, I kept actually relocating the place and time and my mind would kind of let it slide back backward in the 20th century. And then some detail would bring it back to where it actually belonged. So one reason that it didn't slide backward for me in the 20th century is it had a feeling of not having a future, even though it had this very involved and important present tense. Um, there was a sense that this is not a place that is expecting to, hmm. they're not investing in, there, there aren't children, they're, they're not increasing their population. I think they're watching their way of life dwindle. Um, maybe this is not true uh, as how you read it. My read on it was not that these people are personally expecting to ever leave Grouse County, but that they're not expecting the future to happen there um, in a big way. They're they're like they don't have the feeling of the um, cheaper by the dozen family that clearly thinks that whatever they're doing is the future. It that they are where society's energy is. Um, I think that if this were set even in the 1980s, I want to say there would be a sense that um, that the, the excitement of society might land on them sometime soon. I think maybe I I don't know enough about the history um, to say this, you know, if this is true or not. But my guess is that a lot of the farm consolidation has already happened or is going to happen at a very rapid pace so that the family farms, you know, they, they, they name certain places by the families that owned the farms. But a lot of times, like, the families no longer farm that land like the house that Louise and Dan buy at the end is sold to them by the daughter of a farmer and the land is not going to be used as a farm anymore. So I think in some ways, yes, there's this, you know, pervasive feeling that their way of life 
isn't going to exist anymore as they recognized it, right? Like, I think there are still farms in Iowa, you know, we, we eat their, we eat the products of that. Or, well, food know, is whatever. grown there, but it's not the same as a, a It's not the community. same because you don't know the name of the, the man or the woman who grows the food. Yeah. Because the farms are so big now that they're owned by, you know, it's agribusiness now. And they, they sort of hint at it, right? Because when Dan's, uh, Dan sells his trailer, a farmer buys it thinking that he'll use it as an office because now they need computers to run the farm, which they had not needed in the past. So there are hints of the direction that their way, their world is going in, but it doesn't sound like it's a direction that will benefit most of them. It will only benefit those who can consolidate yeah, everything else. It's not going to have this sort of delicate balance of, you know, there's richer people and there's poorer people, but there isn't this kind of massive overclass underclass divide in this community. But that's also not, Maybe not yet. what? Maybe not yet. Well, that's what I mean is that that is not going to last. And, that, but in a more personal way in the book, um, after the end of the, um, I don't know if we're, are we not doing spoilers after the stillbirth of um, Dan and Louise's baby? Uh, they don't talk about whether they would want another baby. They don't, that it, it just seems like that that's just something that they're not going to do. I, you know, that made sense to me because that couple, everything that happens to them, they just sort it just happens they stumble into whatever you know they stumbled into their relationship she got pregnant you know it, it didn't seem like they did anything they certainly didn't do any family planning oh yeah it made emotional truth it, it made emotional sense it it felt like emotional truth it just also was a book where the heart of the story is about something that is very, very important and doesn't quite happen. And it really never is going to happen. Nothing changes right. that, mm -hmm. that sort of ending for them. Um, so I think in some ways there's this warm glow and this kindness about the story. And then in, other ways, there's a sense of um, watching the very end of something. I agree. Mm -hmm. I think that seems accurate to me. It does feel like this is a time that will not be returned to because I can, I'm anticipating just as a person knowing what happens to the country, you know, after what 1992 or something like they mentioned drugs in the book, but it's not really a problem yet. It's almost, it's like a minor thing, um, which is not no longer the case in our country, especially in places like this. Yeah. And you can certainly see where it will fit into these people's lives though in a few more years. Right. Yes. The weird, I mean, I don't know if you two know this, but 
there's a sequel to this book. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was published. Um, that is Tom Drury's most recent novel, Pacific. And, you know, you can cut out the spoilers, but the person, the people that make it out of the town is the religious person, Joan. Joan, she goes back to acting and ends up in Hollywood. Huh. Um, it's a really, it, you know, the book has a this similar tone, but but it's it's changed a bit because of the location. Huh. Interesting. I enjoyed it, but it was it was strange. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the tone would necessarily transfer all that well, actually. The tone seemed like such a big part of the environment, the social and physical environment. If I'm remembering it, it the it had to be more cynical in hmm. this new location. Yeah, I can see that. While retaining um, some of the warmth, but there was more cynicism regarding the characters and their lives. But more not about the characters themselves, but just about the place. Interesting. Yeah. And that was our episode on Tom Drury's The End of Vandalism. Thanks to Adelaina Kavanaugh for being with us. And thanks as always to Adam Bear for our theme music and to LitHub for hosting us. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always find us on Twitter at LitCenturyPod or via email at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com.